it took a lot to make our podcast come together. And Mattress Max said, I want to be part of that. I want to be the presenting sponsor. And he did. And our listeners have responded and said, thank you. We love the show. We love the podcast. We love American-made solid wood furniture delivered today. Send Mac a message and say, hey, Mac, thanks for supporting the Michael Berry Show podcast, and I'll buy my furniture from you when I need it next. Or my new bed, 281-844-1963. I mentioned week or two ago that I had watched a documentary called Brothers in Blues about Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Vaughan. And since that time, um, Billy Gibbons has posted on his social media about it. Eric Clapton has posted on his social media about it. They're both interviewed uh, in the film, and clearly they felt like this was a story that needed to be told. And the way this story came about is a a guy that I have a lot of respect for named Charlie Lusk. When I was on city council 20 years ago, the city was doing some terrible things. And there was this hard-headed Don Quixote jousting at windmills named Charlie Lusk who would come down and complain, and nobody seemed to care because, you know, this must be some Republican real estate guy talking about how we spend our tax dollars. And I had the utmost respect for this man. I didn't know him, but I had the utmost respect for him. And over the years, every time his name has ever come up in a conversation, it's always with this just glowing respect for Charlie Lusk, this guy. And I think I told you all a few years ago, he had been trying to get me. He had bought the Lancaster Hotel, historic hotel in downtown Houston. He wanted me to come down and see it. So I came down and toured it. I was just impressed. It's a great bit of history. So a couple of Saturdays ago, I got an email. I was copied on an email from Charlie And as I said, I know who he is. We're not close friends, but I know who he is and I have a lot of respect for him. And he said, hey, I want you to see this this, uh, documentary called Brothers in Blues. It's about Stevie Ray Vaughan, but it really tells the story about Jimmy Vaughan and Stevie Ray Vaughan that hasn't been told properly and how important he is. Most people would know Jimmy Vaughan uh, through the fabulous Thunderbirds. Well, I didn't really know the story. To me, Jimmy Vaughan was, or at least I thought, the younger brother not the older brother, the less successful, well, we'll get into that, brother, and just some guy living off his older brother Stevie's greatness. Well, that's a long way from the truth. I didn't realize it's not that Jimmy was was drafting in, in Stevie Ray's greatness. It was actually the opposite way around. It's an incredible story. And if you love music, and particularly if you love the Texas music scene and how this came about, and particularly this the blue-eyed soul and and the the uh, blues movement, particularly of this age and this time, and the collaborations, and and Freddie King and and Billy Gibbons of of ZZ Top, of course, and then Clapton comes into the picture. You'll remember, as I told you, it was Clapton's band and manager that were on the helicopter leaving the the concert that Stevie Ray was on, and Eric Clapton stayed back. It, it's an incredible story that I don't think has been told properly. So Charlie says, you got to watch this documentary. It's a Saturday late morning, and it's a day that I have disconnected. I'm not doing any show prep. I'm not doing any meetings, appearances, none of it. I'm just sitting on my back porch, and I'm reading when I see this email come in. The guy who was copied is named Kirby Warnock. So I look up Kirby Warnock, 
And he's got a pretty darn interesting story, which you'll hear about in a minute. And he's the one that made this movie, that put it all together, that made it happen. And, and it's all kind of a unique experience that he brings to this thing. So I emailed back and said, hey, does anybody have a pre-release copy? I assumed it wasn't available yet. I was more than happy to pay the five bucks. I'm not that cheap. Uh, but so I emailed back. And within a few minutes, Kirby Warnock said, love for you to watch the film. Here's a pre-release version. It'll watch one time and then it'll shut down. So I watch it and I get on the email. I must have sent 10 more emails. I'm blown away. This is an incredible story. This wow factor. So I sent back to Kirby and I said, hey, not only have I watched it and love it and I've learned so much, I'd like to have you on the air. Kirby, I looked you up and one of the things that stuck out was Buddy Magazine. And I'm a student of music. I know classic country much better than the blues, although I knew everything that this movie was about. Tell me a little bit about, as I understand it, you discovered the Vaughn Brothers in their early days in small Texas bars while you were the editor of uh, Buddy Magazine, which was the original Texas music magazine from 1976 to 82. Tell me about that. Well, yes, uh, I was uh, working at Buddy, and uh, that Buddy was a Texas music magazine you could only get in Texas. And, you know, and this is back before the Internet and all that stuff. So you had to go to a record store. And we had copies of them free there to people to pick up. We only covered Texas music and we were named Buddy after Buddy Holly, the first Texas rock and roll star. And the publisher of the magazine, the owner of it, was a guy named Stoney Burns. And one night he took me down to a place in downtown Dallas, this is back in 1976, a place called the Texas Chili Parlor. And this was the original Texas Chili Parlor that Frank X. Talbert and his son, Frank Jr., had cranked up. And they had a band there called the Fabulous Thunderbirds. And uh, I went there with Stoney, and I had never seen anyone play guitar the way Jimmy Vaughn played. He was playing with them then, and I was just blown away uh, because I played guitar back then also. But the way Jimmy played it, I realized I was uh, he was playing an instrument that I was no longer familiar with. <laughs> so uh, as we were walking back to the car, I said to Stoney, I said, I've never seen anyone play like that. And he said, yeah, but he's got a younger brother who's even better than he is. And so, yeah, I saw Stevie about two weeks later, and just uh, I wrote about them and Buddy all the time because they were they were so different than what was uh, out at that time. You got to remember at that time the popular stuff was Foreigner and Journey and Cheap Trick, and that was what was being played on FM radio in Boston. But these two guys just played a Fender Stratocaster guitar. They plugged it straight into a Fender amp and didn't have any pedals, effects, or anything like that. And they got all these incredible sounds out of the guitar by using their hands, uh, you know, bending the strings and things like that. And I would go see them playing these little dumpy clubs all over Texas and just say to myself, why aren't these guys famous? You know, because I thought they could play guitar better than anybody I'd ever seen. And I got to witness a lot of great guitar players while I was a buddy. I got to see Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, Robin Trower, Mick Ronson. I mean, you name them. And when they came to Dallas, we got to go to the concert. And a lot of the Vaughn brothers were as good or better than any of them. But the thing was, that this, they were just playing in Texas. They did not move to L.A. or New York like a lot of people do. They stayed in Texas and were trying to make it there. And uh, I just tried to just plug them as much as I can because I just thought they were incredible. And uh, I learned their entire story because they both grew up in a neighborhood in Dallas called Oak Cliff. And I lived there for 37 years and knew a lot of their uh, classmates from elementary school and some of their relatives and uh, the fact that they just came from this Liberty cracker box house in a, um, a working class neighborhood and went to the very top of the rock and roll heap was just amazing to me I just thought this is an incredible story 
and I'd heard a lot of tales about things they'd done. And so for this film, I wanted to track down all those stories and find the people who were in the room when it happened and get them to tell that story on camera. And that's uh, really kind of the genesis of this thing and how it all started there in Buddy. Let me hold you right there. Kirby Warnock is our guest. The movie is Brothers in Blues. You can find it wherever you watch movies everywhere but Netflix, basically. And we'll continue our conversation about his documentary about Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Vaughn coming up. You've got the Michael Berry Show. documentary is called Brothers in Blues. It's about Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Vaughn. It's a wonderful watch. You can see it on every platform, I think, except for Netflix. Just look up Stevie Ray Vaughan, including, if you don't have any of those, on uh, YouTube. It is worth watching, and Kirby Warnock is the filmmaker who made it. I strongly encourage you to watch it. So when you decided to put this project together, I'd like to talk a little bit about the making of the film before we get into some of the things it reveals about not just Stevie Ray Vaughan, but Jimmy Vaughn, which really gave me a whole new perspective and respect for Jimmy Vaughn and, and the love these two had for each other and how they inspired each other and the closeness. The book is, the, the movie is called Brothers in Blues. I, I read somewhere that, that you, you did this project for $70,000 and I will tell you, reading this made me think of it because you use so much music in the film. And I thought to myself, because I am an aspiring documentary maker, haven't done it yet, been involved with several films, been in several films, but never made a documentary and desperately want to. And I read that you you did this for $70,000, but then you realized, oh, I have to have music licenses. And it cost you another $150,000 to get the music licenses Talk a little bit about how that seventy thousand was spent, and then how it how difficult that was to get the music licenses. Well, the the, the film itself was we we shot it and edited it and had it already completed for that seventy grand, and most of our expenses were travel because we uh, flew out to uh, L.A. to interview Eric Clapton. He was going to play a concert at the L.A. Forum the next night, and we interviewed him in a conference room and in, 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 at the hotel he was staying at. And then we drove over to Jackson Brown's studio in Santa Monica and shot his interview. And uh, for Billy Gibbons, we interviewed him at the Midland Horseshoe Arena. <laughs> ZZ Top was playing a concert that night. We caught him you know, there and talked to him. Uh, just it, Really, the most of my expense was hiring a camera crew to come with me and shoot all this because I don't own cameras and lights and audio. You know, you've got to... You've got to get a professional crew to do that. If you don't, you're just, you know, you're shitting on your iPhone. Um, so I hired a professional crew to come do these interviews with me. And a lot of our expense was that. Then when we got to editing it, uh, I had to spend some money on editing software. And I edited it collaboratively with a guy out of L.A., Chase Arrington, and a guy out of Miami, Sandy Schwartz. And we did it through an app called uh, Adobe uh, Creative Cloud or, and, um, or Adobe Premiere. And it lets you work on a project collaboratively online. You can all be looking at the same film and talk and make changes there. And so that was really travel expenses and uh, camera crew were my biggest expense uh, to, to get a shot. Uh, then when I had it done and looked for a distributor, they said, do you have all the music clearances? And I said, well, not yet. And so I had to go get all those. And what you discover is that this is very confusing to people today because you can listen to any song on your phone through 
Pandora, Spotify, or something like that, or even YouTube, and you don't pay anything for it. But once you want to use that song in a film or a commercial, you have to get two sets of clearances. One is the master rights, which the record company owns, and the other is the publishing rights, which the songwriting publisher owns. And so you have to go through two rounds of negotiations with two different entities to get that one song. And in some cases, like the song Life by the Drop that we use on the closing credits, that song uh, was written by two different people, uh, Doyle Bramall and Barbara Logan. They were each represented by a different publishing company. So I had to go through three rounds of negotiations just to get that one song. And they are not giving these things away anymore because you don't have to go buy music anymore. You have, like I say, you can listen to it free on your phone. So once you want to use it in a production, they've kind of got you where they want you. And uh, they, they, uh, they want to get the maximum they can out of you. And, and that's, uh, I liken it to working with a heroin dealer. <laughs> he's got it. He knows you need it. And he's going to tell you the price. <laughs> and, so it's, and I'm not the only one to talk like that. A Richard Linkletter said the same yep. thing. When he made when he made Dazed and Confused, yep. he could not get the rights to the song Dazed and Confused from Led Zeppelin. That they, they wouldn't give him the rights. And so, you know, if you can't get the song, that's it. You know, you, you have no way to get around it. You know, it's one of those it's one of those great stories, Kirby, when when you hear about a song that was supposed to be in a particular movie and they had kind of built a scene around using that song as a bed and they couldn't get the release on that song. So they had to put another song in and that song ends up working and you go, Oh, I didn't know this was a song that would have been there originally. Was there a song that you would have loved to have had in this film brothers in blues about the Vaughn brothers, Stevie Ray and Jimmy that didn't make it because you just couldn't get to an agreement. Yes. Uh, the song I wanted to use off David Bowie's album, let's dance that Stevie played on was a song called cat people and that, in our original cut, we used that song because that was Stevie's best guitar solo on the entire album. We got permission from David Bowie's people to use the recording, but the song was written by Giorgio Moroder, and his estate, he's dead now, his estate would not grant us the clearance on it, so I had to pull that song from the film and couldn't use it, you know. And uh, also there's another one, Scratch My Back, that the Feathers Thunderbirds recorded. The, the record company gave us permission but that song was written uh, by a guy named Slim Harpo. He sold his publishing rights decades ago to a publishing house out of New York City, and they wouldn't give it to me unless I paid them a fortune. And I just said, I can't do that. I'm just one guy. I'm not Steven Spielberg. I don't have that kind of money, you know. And so I had to yank those two songs from the film, and I was really sad because I thought they added to it. But, you know, it is what it is, as the lawyers say. Since you mentioned it, let's go right to that, a Stevie Ray Vaughan story. Stevie Ray is asked by um, David Bowie to do the guitar uh, piece on Let's Dance, and this is David Bowie's comeback song, and it really brings him to a whole new audience, more of a mainstream audience, and the guitar on that is phenomenal. And so Bowie is going to tour, I think a European tour, uh, in support of that album, he asks Stevie Ray to do it. It's a big deal, but Stevie Ray cannot promote his first big solo album, which he's just released. I think it was Double Vision. He can't promote that album. Uh, he has to just be the guitar player to David Bowie. And so Stevie Ray has a big decision to make, and he makes a decision that the critics said was the wrong one, but turns out to be the right one. He said, well, then I won't tour with David Bowie. I will stay here and support uh, my, you know, Texas Flood, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's uh, new album, and that album became a big hit. 
Talk a little, hopefully I didn't tell the whole story and ruin it, but talk a little bit about that story and how important that was to what is now the legend of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yes, uh, actually they were rehearsing for that tour, David Bowie and Stevie Ray Vaughan and the whole Bowie band. They had rented a soundstage in Las Colinas, uh, which was uh, at that time had a movie studio. It's right out of Irving, Texas. And they were there for almost uh, several weeks rehearsing for the tour. And so they were all ready to go. And then when Bowie told uh, Stevie that he couldn't promote Texas Flood, he had to promote Les Sands, Stevie just said, I want to promote my album. So he, he gets fired before the tour even started after he'd rehearsed with him for, you know, for several weeks. And at that time, you know, Stevie was heavy into drugs and alcohol. And a lot of people thought he'd made a cocaine decision. Like, what are you doing? You're turning down David Bowie, you know. But then his album came out and it just really just took off. And so at the time, most of us thought he made the wrong decision, but it turned out to be the right decision because he followed his heart. And, uh, and Texas Flood was a groundbreaking album that really just set him on that whole trail, you know, to success. But, you know, like I say, at the time, most of us thought he had made the wrong move, you know. We'll continue our conversation with Kirby Warnock about his documentary. It's called Brothers in Blues, about Stevie Ray Vaughan and his brother Jimmy Vaughan, and it is wonderful. It's that time. Lock and load. The Michael Derry Show is on the air. I'm always fascinated when there is a story in the news about some dude who at his house has a tiger and a lion and 42 snakes and a rhino and he's just killed somebody and he's got an exotic car and he has chains around his neck and he's a wacko and it turns out his neighbors say he's a complete and utter nut. So what happens to these animals when they're recovered? Somebody has to take them in and the local zoo can't do it. So we saw a story that caught our attention because These types of personalities, and of course exotic animals, hold our interest. This is a story from KHOU. Inside this Houston storefront, it's a walk on the wild side. This is Houston Underground Animals. Nick Louie's independently funded rescue takes in creatures of... Is he making those noises himself? I hope you are enjoying our podcast, and just know that I love to hear from you. You can email me through our website at michaelberryshow.com and I read everyone and I I try to respond to everyone. I'm also appreciative that you support our sponsors. Our sponsor, our presenting sponsor for our podcast that makes this all happen is Gallery Furniture, Jim McInville. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a cell phone number, 281-844-1963. Say, hey, Mac, thanks for sponsoring Michael Berry's podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Where's that? that? He's on the line. That's him doing it. One more time. Man, I don't know if that's the real deal or not. That's kind of impressive. All right, play the story again, Ramon. Inside this Houston storefront. 
It's a walk ah. on the wild side. This is Houston Underground Animals. Nick Louie's independently funded rescue takes in creatures of all shapes and sizes. Some of them are 20, 30 foot snakes. We get exotic animals like monkeys and lemurs. We get crocodiles. And more common reptiles. Bearded dragons. But just like the dog and cat influx in shelters, space here has become a premium. We typically rescue five, maybe 10 animals a month. Then ever since about November of last year, we average anywhere from 30 to 40. A problem, he says, that's exploded in the last six months, but can be traced back to the spike in the pet market during the pandemic. The new toy kind of thing wears off, and then they have an animal a responsibility that they're taking care of. Which can require more time. Bugs three days a week, salads three days a week. Research. Two different types of light. They need heat and they need UVB. Room. This cage is four foot by two foot. And resources. Who wants to go in and spend $700 when you could spend 300 on quote unquote the same thing. Then some new owners are willing to commit to. There's no one to take them in, so they will literally take them and put them outside. It's illegal to own animals like lions, tigers, crocodiles, monkeys over 20 pounds, and snakes over eight feet long that are considered wild by the city of Houston. And even those pets that just aren't as common as dogs or cats can require weekly care and live for decades. Louis says people need to know before they buy. These animals, they rely on you entirely. Zach Tawatari, KHOU 11 News. Nick Louie, the subject of that story, is our guest. Nick, how did you get into these exotics? So I've I've just had a fascination with animals my whole life. Like when I was a kid, I would fake being sick just to w- stay home from hey, school. Hey, Nick, yeah. I think it would add to the listener's experience if about every 15, 20 seconds in the middle of your sentences, you made an exotic animal sound just randomly without just do it and then keep going through the end of the sentence like it didn't even happen. <laughs> I'm serious. So I could give it a try. Unfortunately, I only speak about 14 languages for animals. We won't so I know the give difference. give it a few tries. But... Yeah, just in the middle of sentences. <laughs> just do it like it didn't even happen. Man, I wish I could, but I'm not that talented. You're not that good? Okay. All right. Go ahead. I, I could do peacocks, but that's a little random. Okay. So we we had peacocks, former... but they, they went away. Let's hear your peacock. But, you know, I, I'll tell you this. We we loved our peacocks. Um, they weren't ours. They just ended up on our back porch, and my wife was feeding them, so they stayed. But they um, they had a wide range. I have to say that their portfolio of noises, like if my German shepherd would come running outside, which we tried to prevent, but if she did, they would jump up to the edge of the roof and stare down, and they would just hiss and make these awful sounds. They were so upset, like they were mad at her for having chased them. Oh, yeah. So people don't realize animals have a lot of emotions, and I've even realized specifically with peacocks how diverse it is. So I got my peacock as a rescue on the side of the 10 freeway. It took about four and a half, five hours for me to catch her single-handedly. No nets, no ladders, no tools. We don't have government funding, so I just catch everything with my hands. And so I... (laughs) It's quite a bit like that, yeah. I had to then go out of my way and catch this peacock, and I've had her for a good year now. She's one of the most, like, emotionally intelligent animals I've had. So how did you take possession of this peacock? Because those things will, will scratch you, they will peck you. What did you do? Yeah, exactly that. 
So what ended up happening was I got a call from uh, the Houston police that there was a peacock on the side of the freeway and they didn't have anyone that was like properly trained to deal with it. ASPCA didn't know what to do. Fish and Wildlife said that wasn't their job. And so the police were like, dude, we don't know what to do. So that was one of our very first rescues ever. And that's when I really realized like how serious the problem is. If I have the police calling me saying they need help with an animal and they don't have an actual organization to do anything, that's a pretty serious gap in our, uh, our, our animal funding. I don't know. And so I just, I became that guy. I went out and I caught this peacock with blood, sweat, and tears. Wow. I, I got to admire that. Okay. So your place is called Houston Underground Animals and you're on, you're at 8650 North Houston Roslyn. What, what do you have there? What, what, what is your facility? So that facility doesn't carry exotics that we're inside Houston city limits. So we can't have anything crazy there. So whenever we do rescues, that's typically where we bring the smaller stuff, you know, sugar gliders, hedgehogs, bearded dragons, chameleons, stuff like that, snakes. Whenever we rescue stuff like serval cats, tigers, monkeys, crocodiles, they end up going directly to private zoos or independently funded organizations and stuff like that, just because I don't have the space. My facility is only 1,000 square feet. And so what do you have right now? What do you have on site? At, at, uh, is, there, is there a website for this, Houston Underground Animals? Because i got a Facebook page. Uh, I don't have a website, but I've got Facebook and Instagram. Uh-huh. And if you want, I can go over what we have here, but it depends how long the interview is because we have over 1,000 live animals. Just tell me the interesting stuff that I would least expect. Um, Looks like you got a lot of iguana-type stuff. Uh, I don't do a lot of iguanas. That's one animal that you see dumped super common. Uh-huh. I mean, especially in Florida, it's become a legitimate disaster. They've, they're now a red threat. They're starting to kill off all the indigenous animals. Yep. Iguanas are also highly aggressive. So people don't typically think into animal psychology, but that's one of the things I try my best to do is go inside their head. Look at the predator to prey aspect. If you're a predator, you're walking around all day long with the big stick. You're not worried about anyone messing with you. You know, if someone comes and pokes you, you know, at the end of the day, I can just end your life. So how, what do I care? Now look at it from the prey. Your whole life is wondering who's going to jump on you and try and eat you. So as you're going through and dealing with these animals, you've got to try and think from their perspective. Iguanas are prey. Their entire lives are prey. Even when they're full grown, they're still prey. Who eats so the every iguana? time you go to hold almost every animal eats iguanas, but actually a lot of people eat iguana. Iguana tail is a delicacy all over South America. So iguanas are eaten by everything all the time. So anytime you go to hold your iguana, he's going to think you're trying to eat eat him. So he's going to be biting, scratching. Now, here's the big one. They also have four to five foot tails that are pure muscle. So think how good it feels to be whipped by an iguana tail. The Michael Berry Show. He's just perfect. In 1899, everybody sang old Lang Syne. Nick Louie is our guest. How does this stuff come to you? And, and then do you sell that? I mean, how do you know what can and cannot be sold? 
So I've been working with animals my whole life. I don't mind going on the record and saying I have not been to any medical school. I'm not a vet, nothing like that. Everything that I have learned is 100% self-taught since I was about eight years old. I used to run around California catching reptiles, breeding them, nursing them back to health, releasing them, doing all types of stuff just because I genuinely loved animals. Then as I got into it more and more and more, I started figuring out more about them. Now back to the rescue. When we take animals in, it's one of two things. People are either literally just dumping them outside because they're stressed, overwhelmed, and don't know what to do. That or the other big one we get is a lot of apartments don't allow exotic animals, which doesn't make sense. I understand rats. Rats can get out, breed. Now you have a rat infestation. I understand fish tanks. If you have a 100-gallon fish tank and that breaks, that's a lot of water pouring into the living room. But what I don't understand is how cats and dogs are okay when they are constantly ruining apartments. I have never once heard of an iguana ruining a house or a snake ruining a house. So the other big one is apartment complexes will say, hey, you're welcome to move in, but you can't bring your pets. So then they'll call us and say, hey, I've got four snakes, three iguanas, two bearded dragons, and eight geckos, and they need a new home. Well, now I've got to load up the van, go pick up all those animals, all the cages, all the equipment, bring it back to the shop, and now I've got 15 new mouths to feed. So that's how our business really started out, was just rescuing all these animals that either needed new homes or abandoned outside until the checks started coming in. When I was getting charged six to $10,000 a month as an independently funded 20-year-old, I realized I wasn't going to be able to keep up with this. So that's when we actually opened the physical location of Houston Underground Animals so we could start bringing money in to pay for rescues. When we have rescues that are brought in, if they come in healthy, you can quite easily tell by looking at them, they're good to go. So if that's the case, we just rehome them for very low pricing, you know, just to make a couple bucks that we invested in the animal. Then you get the severely, I'll just say handicapped animals. Those are the ones that take a lot more uh, TLC and a lot more experience. A lot of the problems that we see aren't on the outside, they're on the inside. It's neurological problems. It's a lot of the time behavioral problems. And the other one is diseases that you can't see, like a big one is called metabolic bone disease. It's a major calcium deficiency in the dragons that causes their bones to become glass. So as they're just walking around, they're constantly breaking bones. It's one of the most tragic things that can happen to an animal. Do you ever come across an aisle hog? Anybody ever call you to pick those up? I have not gotten any calls for a hog yet. I'd say the most interesting call I've had to date was I had to go pull a wild mountain lion out of an apartment complex's pool. So they had drained the pool because they couldn't afford to maintain it, but a huge rain had filled it about halfway up. A mountain lion ended up getting trapped in the pool and it was too deep for him to jump out and too shallow for him to get out. So he was just stuck treading water all night long. And so I single-handedly had to go in and actually rescue a mountain lion. So does Houston Underground Animals actually turn a profit now? Can you live off of this business? Um, that's a very complicated question. The easiest answer is no. I've been doing this for three years, and I have made exactly zero dollars. Then how do you survive? So I am, the only thing that I get from bis my business is groceries. 
It doesn't even pay for rent or gas or anything else. So I still have to make all my own money on the side of Houston Underground animals just to pay for myself. I haven't been on a vacation in three years. My birthdays are spent taking care of animals. Christmas is taking care of animals. I'm here 365 days a year for 18 to 20 hours taking care of animals. So you got a little side hustle. I'm not saying you're a dealer. But I am saying if you were to have a day job business where you could be a pot dealer, this would be a great front. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm not going to say too much, but uh, been there, done that, wasn't working out for me. <laughs> it, it, doesn't pay uh, as well as it, it doesn't pay as well as it used to. I got you. I got you. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I was making plenty of money doing that. I was a dumb kid. You know, uh, plenty of kids do it. They grow up. They want easy money, so they try that. I started getting in trouble and I realized this just isn't for me. And so I realized my passion was animals and I dedicated my whole life to animals. But now my side hustles trading stocks. It's a lot, it's a lot easier, a lot more legal. I like it better. I noticed you got a lot of snakes on here. You got the rat snake, you got the Mexican king snake, which is an ominous looking black snake, but I guess it's a non-venomous snake as most of them are. So snakes are a big one for me. I absolutely love reptiles and snakes have so many different colors, patterns, personalities. But now to just keep it real simple, they're also the easiest. 99% of snakes, you feed them a mouse once a week, they poop once a week, and you're done. Ramon wants so that's to know why what the I like the snakes. Like. <laughs> um, it's actually surprisingly a lot like dog poop. The only difference is uh, they kind of have that like bird thing where they poo and pee at the same time. Oh, yeah. So that's the only major difference between, imagine like a dog poo with a little like pee thing attached to it. Well, bats do that. And that bat guana, the reason, uh, like the, the wall street bridge, people go under there and they talk about how, how awful it smells. That's not their poo that smells. That's their urine that's mixed in there. Cause their urine is awful. Oh, I believe it. I'm looking almost everything you put on here is a reptile. Uh, we get more reptiles than anything else. Now here's one of the other, problems. Oh, here's one. What's a kinkajou? Um, kinkajous are, they're very monkey-like, but they're actually a South American raccoon. Oh, that is and a so cool-looking deal. How big does that thing get? Because this one looks like a little bitty one. Um, so there's highland and lowland kinkajous. Uh, one of them's smaller, the other one's bigger. I've got a bigger kinkajou, and then I've got three of the smaller ones. The smaller ones are a little smaller than house cats. The lowland, the bigger ones, are a little bigger than house cats. So they're not very big. Now, kinkajous are actually one of my favorite monkey-like species just because of how much, I can't even think of the word for it, but you know when you play with a dog and you could feel how light they're touching you with their teeth? Uh-huh. That's how the kinkajous are. I have never once been bit by a kinkajou. Now, I do know when you do get bit, it is horrific. They have very sharp teeth. They have long teeth. And when they bite, they hold on. I have never been bit by a kinkajou because they'll warn you. If you're messing with them and doing something they don't like, they go boo, 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 and they just touch you with your teeth. They remind you, hey, I am an animal. I can hurt you. I just don't want to. And so at that point, I leave them alone, and I stop whatever I'm doing, and I have never once been bit. Monkeys, on the other hand, are way sweeter than kinkajous. They're way more cuddly. They're way nicer until they're not. When you have a monkey in a bad attitude, and it's happened to me plenty of times, they will actually attack you. 
Now, it's not like some brutal thing like you hear about on TV. Mm. Their bites really aren't that serious. Apes are, but like the little under 20-pound monkeys, it's almost like a, like a baby biting you, you know? They bite you, but you can take it and actually like throw it on the bed, and it'll jump right back at you. So they'll continue coming at you if they're angry. What's a sugar glider? Is that some sort of a squirrel? I'm looking on your site. So that's actually a huge, uh, another big misconception. Sugar gliders aren't even rodents. So they're marsupials. They come from Australia. They have pouches like kangaroos. So everyone calls them flying squirrels, but they are not squirrels. We have flying squirrels here in America. They are rodents. They carry their babies on their back. So sugar gliders are very similar to flying squirrels, but they're actually marsupials, not rodents. Houston but we deal with everything. animals. Fascinating story. We heard your story, and I told Brad to get you on the line because I, I knew there would be, I knew you would be an interesting character. And the phone number to reach you there is 949-257-8360. Is that right? Yep. That's us. 949-257-8360. Well, at some point, I'll be in your neck of the woods, and I'll stop in and see what kind of crazy stuff you have. You're listening to The Michael Berry Show. I hope you are enjoying our podcast, and just know that I love to hear from you. You can email me through our website at michaelberryshow.com, and I read everyone, and I, I try to respond to everyone. I'm also appreciative that you support our sponsors. Our sponsor, our presenting sponsor for our podcast, it makes this all happen is Gallery Furniture, Jim McInville. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a cell phone number, 281-844-1963. Say, hey, Mac, thanks for sponsoring Michael Berry's podcast. 